Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Shomit Ghosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Jade Rubik on the show. Jade's an angel leader advisor to many startups, such as Jelly, Ace, Orbit, Flatfile, Forestry, and many more. Jade was also previously VP of Engineering at New Relic, Mode, and Gremlin, just to name a few. And so in this episode, we're going to cover really detailed tactics for engineering leaders from Jade's experience leading engineering teams at various startups, as well as advising many others. So welcome to the show, Jade. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. So let's start with your background. How'd you end up becoming a full-time advisor to engineering leaders? I've been in small companies and startups for a pretty long time. I would say I really kind of got my start in some ways at New Relic. I was a very early employee there and was lucky enough to just kind of go through that crazy growth phase. It was really career defining. I felt just totally lucky to have been a part of it. And I was there for like eight or nine years and started as a software engineer. And when I finished, I was responsible for the product engineering. And after I left New Relic, I really wanted to kind of test my, what I had learned at a lot of other places. And so I went to Gremlin, which was a software as a service. It was like chaos engineering as a service uh, company. And they're still around. I was there for a year and a half. And when I was at Gremlin, right at the beginning of the pandemic, we were hit really hard. Like a lot of our customers were airlines, like travel industry. And so we've laid off like a third of the company. I recommended to do the same to me. And for me, that was like actually kind of an opportunity. I, I was like, okay, maybe this is a perfect time for me to try my hand at fractional interim and advisory work. And so I gave myself like a couple of months and Within a few months, I had a very viable business, and um, it's been great. I think my career now is like 23 startups, and it's just been incredible for like the breadth. I would characterize a lot of my early experiences very deep, and this has been very broad, and so it's been a very nice compliment to my learning. So let's move into actually the hiring side of things, because I think this is sure. where, you know, it's like, where, when do you hire managers, at what stage, all these sort of things that founders are constantly dealing with, right? So let's start off first with the common scenario that, that we have at Bolt Start, which is two technical founders. They both code, right? But one's kind of taking the CEO role, one's taking the CTO role. When do you think they should hire an eng leader? I do think it depends a lot on those founders. I would say the most common point that I would recommend for most founders is there's kind of this complexity step that happens when you get around like 15 to 20 or 25 engineers. And basically everything starts to break down there. Your communication patterns, you need to go from like many to many communication to like segmented designed communication a little bit. You generally start needing teams and some sort of like lightweight structure, and you increasingly kind of need management as a practice. Before that, pretty much anything you do is going to be fine. Um, and depending on how much experience the founders have with that type of thing, I usually recommend that they bring in at least an engineering manager at that time. The most common pattern I see actually is, is founders that think they can do it. They're brilliant people. They've solved lots of problems in the past, but 
the warning I would give to them is that this is a problem I see brilliant people fail at all the time. Like it just happens over and over again. And I think it's because the way you solve those sort of organizational problems, it's really hard to know how to navigate that unless you've been, been through it before. So we talked about a founder believes that they can do it, but they don't hire an engineer. But let's say they do, right? They've decided, hey, we're going to go do this. What are the common pitfalls that you see of an engineer not working out? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, there are so many things that can go wrong, um, unfortunately. I think one of the most common anti-patterns I see is, I think this is so common that it actually is almost like a stereotype, is one of the founders will become the CTO and you'll bring in like a VP of engineering and that relationship, unless it really works well, like that's such a critical relationship to work. And so you really need somebody that those two people can like, divide up their areas of responsibility in some meaningful way and like be partners to each other in a way that they just like implicitly trust each other. That can be challenging because founders have a different level of investment usually. And I see at a lot of startups, founders have like a degree of anxiety about their company that is just like in the at atmosphere. And it is part of the reason they're so successful, but it can also drive a poor relationship with your head of engineering. And so you have to really like give that person some space to own their area and be effective and improve their area while at the same time making sure that they're actually improving and delivering. So that's, I say, one of the most common things. I, some other things, like sometimes I see heads of engineering that just don't really have the right type of experience, that maybe they have experience at two big companies and they just want to copy a bunch of those patterns. Startups are really weird. Like they need different things in different phases and that can happen very fast. You know, one year you, your needs are very different than the next year. And so that requires a lot of flexibility from the head of engineering. And so that's something I, I would just warn founders to be aware of is like, how flexible is this person in their thinking and ability to adapt to the situation? And how many tools can they bring to bear to solve the organizational problems the company has? A final thing is like engineering is really evaluated based on our ability to deliver. And I sometimes see some engineering leaders that are just a little bit more focused on the process than they are on, on the delivery. And those two things really have to go hand in hand. You have to be creating an organization that's continually getting better and that your company's complexity is a kind of exploding over time because you're becoming bigger. And so there's more communication pathways and more projects and all these things. You have to be like able to kind of cut through that complexity at a rate that is like faster than the rate of growth of the company. But Ultimately, you're, you're evaluated by what kind of engineering, and that, need, that needs to always like be getting better, it needs yeah. to be getting faster and higher quality, and you know all those things you want to see improve. In terms of the title of that engineering hire, because you know titles do matter as much as we like to yeah. say, maybe they don't. They do, and so VP Eng versus head of Eng versus director of Eng, whatever. Is there a sort of framework that you have for thinking about like when those titles should come into play? I'm going to say this, and I'm curious what your reaction to this will be. Generally, I think it's like tied to the stage of the company, like how early on the company is. Sometimes you'll find people that are just really experienced. And so like they can kind of command more of a title, but it sometimes will be a little bit inappropriate for the stage of the company. And 
So what I usually find is that like this doesn't happen for a particular role. It happens for all of your roles. You have head of engineering, head of product, head of marketing. And then you do that probably through like, I don't know, sometimes around series A, maybe series definitely by series B, you're starting to think about like the VP roles. But I usually see like seed stage that seems way too early. Series A seems like where it starts to transition. Does that jibe with your experience? Yeah, no, I think it does. I think what's interesting is that because it's typically like you have the CEO and then the CTO kind of become set in place from the beginning, that sometimes you have this migration almost up to VP title in the end org a little bit sooner than it does happen with the rest of the org, which like... Yeah. I don't necessarily think makes sense. I guess it's natural that would happen because like you already have the CTO technically, I guess, but it's a weird thing that happens in startups. But I think in general, what you're saying makes sense, which is just, you got to find the right person at the right phase. And if they need a certain title because they command that title from previous roles or something, then that's something that you can figure out based on that phase. One of the things I wanted to actually talk about was, you know, you mentioned you came into New Relic as an IC. A lot of other people are doing that, right? They come in as an IC, things are going well, the team has hired, it's maybe not to that 15 person edge team yet, but maybe it's five to eight or something like that, right? And now all of a sudden, it would be helpful maybe to have an edge manager, right? To have somebody come in. And so how should teams and founders think about elevating that person to the role of manager? And maybe it's from your personal experience or you know what you coach teams on. So there's a couple of ways of looking at this. One is I, I see a lot of startups where they kind of will have this tech lead role, which is kind of like, to me, it feels like a transition period before you actually establish like a real management practice. Like one anti-pattern I see with that is that people will sometimes extend that model a little too long. And so they don't actually develop their internal ability to have like operations and management as a practice. So I think it's fine to like set people up as a tech lead and kind of have these kind of roles that feel like half management, but only kind of in the earlier stages of the company. And when I'm evaluating like an IC moving to a management role, I basically like to look at it this way. I evaluate it almost exactly like I would evaluate them moving into a product management role. It's a very different skill set they're going to need to learn a lot. They're going to not be a great engineering manager at first, but they have like a ton of advantages coming from like their relationships on the team, their knowledge of the technology, like they're gonna have the respect. They're just really deeply embedded in the company in a way that's really valuable. And so I guess the way I, I like to look at it is I'm generally supportive of those type of moves, but I think there's a precondition that you just have to make sure that they're getting really excellent support. They need a, like a good support system. So like having an experienced manager, I think is really good. I think a wonderful pattern is having like a management team, like of a couple managers where they, they support each other. And if the founders or the head of engineering like is very deliberate about forming those groups so that those people are learning from each other and actually working together in some way. I think that can be a really good pattern. And then sometimes like having an advisor or some sort of like mentor for them, I think can, can also be really effective. But I like to do this internal gut check where I say, 
do I have more confidence in this as an approach or hiring somebody externally? And how do I compare the confidence of those two things? There's some unknowns with a new person, but they may be a lot more experienced. And I sometimes like to bring them in as like the second manager, because sometimes having an experienced manager can kind of show what that role can do in a way that somebody new to the role might not. Got it. Okay. That's an interesting framework of like, hey, you know, someone comes up first, but then also maybe in the future you have somebody and then they can kind of probably one person knows the tech and the culture a little bit better because they've been there since, you know, the early days and then the other coming from more from the manager side. But, you know, we've talked a lot about this IC to management transition at the same Mm -hmm. time. Like there are a lot of folks that are good ICs. They enjoy what they're doing. They want to continue doing that. And frankly, the company should want them to continue doing that, right? Because they just really are good at what they accomplishing. So I see paths. What advice do you have for teams in that area? It's a question that comes up a lot. And I'm actually kind of surprised how much it comes up. I think a lot of people are copying from larger companies and they, the expectations I think have become a lot more pervasive throughout the startup ecosystem of like, people want like well-defined career paths. They want to know how they're going to progress. And I think that's Totally understandable. And I guess I would generally say like companies before product market fit, they probably want to invest as little time in this as they can, because you don't know if you're going to have a career at this company because like it may not be around next year. And so what I generally advise early on is you want to put a little bit of attention to this. Like you want to have people understand, for example, what the different titles might be. And you want to hire people probably at different levels. And so there's like some things that you're going to need to do where having like a sketch of a career framework is really useful. And those are things you can build upon later. And so if you kind of create like a skeletal system, that actually can be really helpful for the ICs to understand what their career path is, is going to look like. And they're also going to see that you care about their careers but you don't have to overinvest early on. And then after you do have product market fit, what I generally advise is that it get continual low grade attention. Like it should always be improving over time, but like you need more of it as you grow. And so if you give it like a, a sustained low level of effort, you're doing it in a very thoughtful way. You can actually end up with a, a wonderful career track and also be showing your employees that you care about their careers and you're continually making things better. Let's say somebody gets promoted from IC to a manager, but is not happy <laughs> with what they're doing, yeah. right? Uh, and then wants to yeah. go back to IC, like, is that a pretty simple, just, okay, hey, we want to keep them, like, let's move them back? Or is there something else that people should be aware of? I like to make that actually pretty painless if possible. So generally, what I recommend is that you have these two different career paths and that you make it possible for people to move back and forth. And like, you don't want to have to let somebody go who's like really valuable to the company if they want to move back into an IC role. And actually, I think that's really beneficial. Like ICs that have had management experience, they can be incredibly impactful sometimes. And an IC moving to a management role if they have the right support, that can also be just super high leverage. So the biggest roadblock I sometimes see there is around salaries because um, managers do tend to get paid more for the same level of experience. 
And so you need to have some sort of like coherent compensation philosophy around what are you going to do if somebody moves to management and then back? Your choices are lowering their salary back or basically saying they're stuck at that higher salary and won't really grow for a while until they're promoted to an equivalent point. And there's kind of trade-offs to that. And there's a lot of thoughts on that. We may have to dive into another future podcast episode about that, because I imagine there's a lot of weird stuff that you'd have to address in a conversation around that. Yeah. Every startup I've been a part of, like there's a phase where the engineering leader basically has to clean up the messes of the past. It happens over and over again, and you kind of figure out some patterns for how to deal with it. Got it. Well, hopefully that's why they could use an advisor like you. So, But let's move into actually, we've talked a lot about just, you know, the engineering, the hiring, the management, just in the engineering org, but obviously engineering is a cross-functional job and org. And so let's first start with maybe how product and eng best work together. You know, I've seen both where it's like product leading, sometimes it's eng leading, right? So what advice do you have to make effective collaboration between these two teams? I'm so glad you bring this up because I think this is like, probably the most critical success factor for engineering organizations. Like I've just seen this pattern so many times that like whenever I see high performance, there's always like a really tight relationship between product and engineering. Every time I see dysfunction, there's not always, but usually I see some challenges here. And I guess I'd start with, you don't solve this through OKRs. <laughs> OKRs are not going to solve your problem. And the patterns I've seen for this are that basically you want a strong like team. You want like a strong local leadership team and you want like kind of all the way up. You need those people to act like team members where, and what I mean by that is that like people have a sense of trust in each other. They're able to critique each other's work. People don't like can bring up things they're concerned about, where they collaborate on problems, where they talk about, you know, what they're seeing, where like there's a really open flow of communication and problem solving together. I was really fortunate at New Relic to kind of stumble upon this model of basically, I kind of stamped out this local leadership team on every product team we had where we had uh, engineering, product, and sometimes design, and often like a tech lead. We would meet on a weekly basis and just like talk about what was going on and what was coming up. And we'd problem solve together. We'd talk about upcoming projects. We'd talk about like, how are we feeling about how this is going? Or what are we hearing from the, the engineering team? Oh, we've got this problem. Oh, we've got, you know, on-call has been really bad. Just want you to know we're taking care of it with this and this next project. Why are we doing this? Like, I don't even understand, like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, is it really a good project for us to do? And it, it basically like got that leadership team just all on the same page in a way that like the engineering leader could talk about like the value to the engineers. Like, oh no, this is actually really important. Like we're doing this because it's gonna solve this problem for customers. Or they'd hear from the designer, like, hey, that thing we just released, nobody can use it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we're going to do a little bit of, of work to go back and, like, tweak a few things so that it works. So I think that kind of, like, partnership is just 
totally essential. And I guess I would say for founders or for leaders, one of the mistakes I've made a lot in my career is kind of letting those relationships not work and kind of like and try to encourage them to work when I think nowadays I would just be a lot more aggressive. Give it a, a time limit, like a month or maybe two. And like, if it doesn't work, just shuffle the people or let them get a go or that relationship has to be built. And if it doesn't, don't let that lie there. I want to maybe dive into that a little bit further. So let's say you go into an organization or you've seen it, whether you have had this experience or not, but if there was a situation where engine product were not working together closely, one, I guess, how would you diagnose that that was the case? Would it be shipping velocity? Would it be, or is there something different that you would understand that they're not working together closely? And then is the way that you correct it to do what you just said about trying to put together those sort of local teams? Or what are the steps that teams could take to go about correcting that? Yeah, usually when I'm diagnosing like a team or an organization not shipping, what I like to do is focus on the work and the communication and like, how does that work happen? What is happening around that work? And so I would usually dive in kind of talk to a lot of the people involved. And then what I like to look for is how is product operating and what are they communicating to the world and how is engineering operating and what are they communicating to the world and sometimes design, but I usually focus on engineering product. And what I'll often find is that they basically are duplicating everything. Product is reporting on the state of things to their constituencies, and then engineering is reporting on the state of things. And sometimes they almost don't meet. One of the first things I like to look at is like, how are they talking with each other? And what is the quality of those conversations? A lot of times I'll, I'll look into it and I'll be like, oh, no, they're actually having those conversations and everything. And they don't need like that meeting structure or this art kind of artificial thing because they're, they're just already doing it. They know to relate to each other that way. But a lot of times I find that it's something you just kind of have to set up initially. And then after that, they can kind of own it and I can, I can just step back and, and disappear. I've just found that that's a really common pattern is that they don't really know how to work together as a team and they're not incentivized really to work together as a team. So you kind of have to like kind of force the issue or just make it really clear that that's the expectation. And then once people kind of get the hang of it, then they're like, oh yeah, this is just the way we do things. Yeah. We've covered the R&D side of the house, but what about the go-to-market side? And I guess the question should be, should engineering be having those same sort of cadence of stand-ups with the go-to-market teams, or should that kind of matriculate through product and then product and eng have that tight-knit discussion? I've thought about this a fair amount, and I don't actually have like a strong opinion about this. I think what I would say about it, though, is that the first thing is I think engineers need to be totally immersed in the needs of customers. I've been in environments, I actually kind of got my starting in a lot of environments where we weren't totally immersed in what customers cared about. And we would just do these projects that product gave us and didn't really understand like how people were using it or why it was important to the customers. We were just building stuff. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think like 
companies that really focus their engineering teams on solving problems for customers and like being really connected with customer pain are just going to be way more successful. Even if they build half as much, they're going to build stuff that's twice as valuable because it's going to just match the needs of the market so much better. And I guess the second thing I would say is usually what I would suggest there is that product engineering and go-to-market like leadership should solve the problem of making sure that sales and marketing needs are well represented, that we understand what sales is learning from customers, what we're hearing from sales and marketing. I generally think that product is in the best position to kind of integrate all these concerns and also like you don't want to overfix it on those things because you you want to be building for the market. And so I often find that like product, they're pulling from a lot wider set of sources. And so they're often the best people to do that. But I will say like at New Relic, there was a period of time where we had product marketing people embedded on each of our products. And that was wonderful. It was just totally wonderful to like hear what the plans were for how they were going to talk about things, understand like how it was being communicated to customers, make sure we were all on those things. They were involved very early on. It kind of created this sort of partnership that I thought was really, really valuable. But that was when, you know, New Relic was a little bit bigger. And yeah, I'm not sure I'd always solve it that way. So a lot of times when, you know, like there's, there's no meeting Wednesdays or something like that, or, or, or only meetings are on Wednesdays or something, I think is, is the way that, uh, you know, engineers will be like, this is ideal. Right. And so, you know, otherwise I can't do my deep work because I'm, I'm doing too much stuff. How do you think about this concept of, Hey, we want to make sure engineers have the time to actually do their deep work. Right. But at the same time, like it may be actually helpful to have an engineer on a sales call. It may be helpful to have an engineer actually go to the customer in person, right? And see how they're how they're using it. But at the same time, you want to be mindful of like, oh, you don't want to throw them off of the sprint that they're working on or whatever. So do you have a framework or, or a way to assess the, the need for that? What I generally like to do is I like to have most of the team focused and then have kind of like a rotating role on the team that is basically handling most of the things that would interrupt the team, like on-call, maybe like inquiries from other teams or from support. And I think that's a, a good time for those people to like meet with customers or kind of have that sort of like interaction. I also think you can, there's ways you can do this that aren't like super disruptive. One of the best product managers I ever worked with she would come to basically every meeting and basically educate the entire team on their market. She would demo like things she had learned during the team demos. In the team meetings, she'd just spend a few minutes like, hey, I just met with this customer and learned this really interesting thing. And that reflects like this pattern I'm seeing recently. I love that pattern. I also interviewed this VP of engineering a couple of months back, and I, I loved this idea he had where he basically curated a couple of like session recordings on their application. And he would just start off the week in, in the team meeting showing customers using our site. And I just thought that was brilliant. 
it was kind of a reinforcement that like we care about how people actually use things. And it, it kind of spread this sort of awareness that most web applications are harder to use than the programmers programming it think it is. And I think that sort of empathy is just totally valuable. Yeah. I think in engineering, we constantly have this trade-off sometimes of scalability and reliability versus just getting shit done to say in an easy way, right? But you know, sometimes you just need to ship and you need to get it out there. You need to put it in, in customers' hands versus saying, hey, this is going to be the best thing. It's rigorously tested, all, all those sort of items. And so is there a framework that you have for teams to think about that sort of thing? Yes. So I have two different things that I would say about that. The first is that I like to think of startups as having like a certain number of bets that they can make. You know, typically you have maybe two years between funding rounds. You basically have like this certain sort of runway for like proving you're going to make it to the next stage and that your company is like growing in all these particular ways and like serving customer needs in all these particular ways. And so because of that, like if you count the number of bets you actually get to make during a, a two-year time, a lot of projects are typically like three to six months in length. And that's like worst case scenario, like four bets that you're making as an engineering organization. You're basically doomed unless you guess right because not all your bets are going to pay off. And so I think both with shipping software and with process, I think it's really good to be incremental in your approach because that basically gives you more bets. Instead of you know four bets, you get maybe 12 or 16 bets that you can make. Each of them is a little bit smaller, but you learn from each of them and it makes your next bets better. That's kind of the first thing is this kind of bet metaphor is when you're getting stuff out the door and when you're investing time in things, you don't want to over-invest and over-create things. You want to create things that are basically scoped down to your present needs. So the classical example of people is like, people bring up, it's like, oh, you're deploying your app to five users using Kubernetes, right? Right. And you're kind of over-engineering things. Um, but that definitely does help with scalability, I think, in the future. And so would that be something when you're talking about the bet that you would almost size as like a, hey, this is more complexity, this will take more effort. So that's a larger step, which means like we do smaller things incrementally until we reach a point where we're just like, okay, this is a bet that's worth taking because we've reached that stage that if we want to be ready for scale, we're going to really need this. Is that kind of the right way to think about it? Yeah, I think so. Like, I think that's a premature bet often. Maybe you could do, instead of setting up Kubernetes, you could do maybe a couple days and end up with something that will take you pretty far. My second point there, though, is I like to use the metaphor of compounding interest. So when you are deciding whether to just get stuff done or you want to kind of build like the perfect system, I generally think that it's best to solve your immediate problems but make sure you, you're going to benefit a little bit more than just solving that current problem. So like the Kubernetes example is one example, but like one thing I see a lot is hiring. If you're going to do hiring, do you want to set up the perfect hiring process or do you want to do enough to just hire the next person or two? Well, in that case, I think what you want to do is you want to like make it better than it is now, enough that you 
have some confidence to solve your immediate problems. But it's also like you want to have something written down that you can start from next time. And so I, I see a lot of times people, they just solve their current problems, but they don't tee it up for the next step. And so like with Kubernetes, maybe you solve it in an immediate way for yourself, but you set yourself up for next time. Maybe you containerize it or you can solve your immediate problems while also allowing yourself to benefit in the future. Got it. That makes sense. One thing is you brought up documentation, which actually brings me to a question I've been thinking about, which is sometimes you have teams siloed in all these different areas. Like I'll just bring up a common one, open source. Sometimes you have the SaaS team, the hosted team, right? And you have the open source team, which is like spending time on the community features and spending time on the more enterprise customer features. These teams hopefully have tight feedback loops, right? But at the same time, they are working on, you know, sort of different things in their day to day. So is like the best advice there, just document everything. And and that's the way that you can maintain that connectivity and understanding of what the teams are working on, what they're seeing, or what advice do you have for when teams start to get a bit more silo? A couple of things. I, I think documentation is actually really important. One thing I I usually do is I say in organizations I've led, it's not official until it's written down in the wiki or whatever the standard place is. And same thing with the features. It's not an official feature unless people can use it. And that should be true of internal tools as well. Even if it's really bad documentation, there should be something. And I would say as your company scales, you want to actually minimize the need for communication between teams and what you want to encourage a lot of communication within teams. And so basically you want to make it so that other teams can use your work products in a self-service way. I also find for kind of like awareness, demos can be really good. They can be a really good way to kind of understand how the product is evolving. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd love to shift actually into kind of the current environment that we're dealing with, which is a pretty challenging environment to say the least, right? And there's there's multiple things I'd like to discuss here, but I guess one thing is Mark Zuckerberg actually, I think had a letter that he put out that was, we cut the team by a significant amount and we're moving a lot faster and innovation's back and we're going through all this. And and so on the one hand, it's like, okay, great. Like that seems like you've hit the holy grail. You know, why'd you get so big to begin with, right? But like, okay, now you're moving super fast or whatever. But I imagine there's trade-offs here. There's a reason why you got that big, right? And, and there's a reason now why maybe you're moving faster by trimming down the team. So I guess describe why Eng teams can find that they're moving faster, but also what may be given up in that shift. Yeah. So I think one reason a smaller team can sometimes work a lot faster is that there's a lot less communication overhead. Founders of startups are always talking about, oh, we used to be, just be able to do this. And that was because you had like four people in a room and everybody shared state. They all understood what each other were doing. And so sometimes I see that like larger teams, if they're not managed very well, they don't share state very well. And so they're not actually really operating as a team. They're operating kind of as this just group that reports to the same person. And because of that, I think they can lack that sort of ability to just solve a problem really, really quickly. I like to use comparisons like that as a way of kind of figuring out where your process is not serving you. 
One thing I think is really valuable to do is to do like quarterly-ish offsites and to kind of compare the results between when you're working in an idealized way versus when you're working the normal way. And the idealized way, it's not a fair comparison because you're not worrying about a lot of things that you actually have to worry about. But it's good to kind of have a baseline and then be able to create like this mental model of, oh, okay, so our bugs and our maintenance of these systems and all these other things, it's taking that much of our effort that it's like that noticeable. And I think what is happening in you know the Zuckerberg case, you know, I don't actually know their situation, but I would guess that they're deferring a lot of like maintenance and quality and bugs. And I guess I've seen that backfire at New Relic. We did that a lot because we ran a pretty lean engineering organization. And one of the disadvantages was our product really atrophied in a lot of ways. And it kind of looked like we weren't taking care of the product. And there were ways in which we weren't. So I think that is the danger is that you can lose your customer experience and the like polish that I think most engineering organizations actually underinvest in or invest weirdly in. Yeah. Everybody's getting told to do more with less. And so yeah. how do you actually do that? Is it focusing on the main things that matter or are there other things that teams should be thinking about? I actually think the key thing here is having better conversations. And what I mean by that is that engineers just want to build stuff and they will often overbuild. Product managers just want to deliver projects and they'll often create projects that are way more complex than they need to. And I think there's this very underexploited phase early on in almost every project where there's this opportunity to kind of reconceive of the project or figure out the core value of that project in a way that it's not as big of a thing. Maybe you don't do as much. Maybe you do like half or 20% of what the original idea is and just do that before you do all the other stuff. I'm continually surprised how little people engage in that sort of like dialogue and critique. And I mean that about technical plans too. Like a lot of times engineering organizations will embark on these like three to six month refactoring projects. And I'm like, wow, if we could eliminate the need to do that every you know year or two, those are really expensive. And sometimes they're necessary, but why did we get into that situation in the first place? If we could be 10% or 20% better at choosing these things to begin with, maybe we wouldn't have gotten in that situation. And I think that comes about when you have people really critiquing each other's ideas and like really, I would say that's the, the most underexploited part of every organization really is that people don't know how to critique each other and they don't know how to work together in such a way that they can make better decisions. The last question I'd like to ask you would be around you mentioned 20 plus teams that you're advising, right? So I imagine you find yourself repeating the same advice over and over and over again. What are yes. those common pieces of advice that you find yourself repeating over and over again? Because hopefully through this podcast, you'll be able to uh, <laughs> to be able to help founders and, and teams with that right now. Yeah, there's so many different things I could say to that. The first thing is that 
ultimately engineering is measured by our delivery. And so it's usually best to start with how work is being done. And I just find everything tends to get paired with that. Whenever I work with a team that's really poorly performing, I always see the problems being addressed and the delivery improving at the same time. They always seem to be linked. And I would say almost always, you just want to look at how work is being done, how people are having conversations around that work, like look at it kind of from a systems perspective and see how it's actually working and then improve it. I guess I would say the other thing is that I almost all the time try to encourage teams to find better ways of working with each other. It's funny how much of like engineering leadership is just about like people stuff and how we talk to each other, how we solve problems together is like really most of it. And I find that comes up just all the time. The other thing I would say, there are certain stages that startups go through, or really when any organization grows, there's kind of these step functions of complexity that are kind of hard to navigate. And so when you see yourself in a situation where everything's just not kind of working and it used to work, those are times I think it's best to start reaching out to people. Like, you know, people that have been through it before, talk to your peers, talk to advisors. There's some patterns there that are actually really hard to figure out just based on first principles or observing it. And it's way easier to go through that if you have some help. You know, I said that was the last question. I actually have one more that I want to ask you on that. You mentioned mapping how work is done. What is the most effective way for people to understand how work is being done? Because I imagine if you're doing it internally and you're asking questions like this, let's say you're the founder asking the early team, it's like a weird thing to discuss. So is the best thing to do to, one, bring in someone like as an advisor or from the outside to do it? Or have you seen putting someone as a commander, you know, or like an incident commander, but like in this case, a work being done commander to do that? Like what are effective ways to being able to uncover that? I think it, it can be done internally or externally. So when I was at New Relic, I kind of did this a lot internally. And my manager would kind of point me at parts of the organization that weren't working very well. And he'd be like, I don't know what's going on over there. I think it's this. Can you go make it better? And so I would kind of go to those teams. I basically would spend like a week or two just talking to everybody, interviewing everybody, asking them questions about like, what sucks about your job nowadays? How are projects showing up? Where are they coming from? I kind of interrogate them. My goal was to become more of an expert on their part of the company than anybody else was within a shorter period of time as I could, within like a week. And usually I would do that through like mapping out things, looking at their, the artifacts that they have, talking to the people, looking at deployments and things like that. But you can also do this externally. You just want to make sure that the person has done this sort of thing before. So you want to kind of hear a lot of case studies of like, okay, how have you done this in previous companies or previous situations? And I've done that a lot as an advisor. That's a pretty common ask is like, hey, our projects just aren't shipping anymore. I think it's that we don't have like a good project management practice, but can you kind of diagnose the situation and let me know like what you recommend? But more than anything, I, I would say it's like talking to the people involved. 
That makes sense. Well, I think the, the key here is communicating. Communication is pretty much what we've talked about. I think overall yeah. through all of this is just tactics around that. So it's a great takeaway. You know, Jade, thanks so much for taking the time and uh, really appreciate this. Uh, we'll link to actually, you've started publishing a lot more thoughts recently and, and it's very exciting. So we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. But if people would like to find you, how should they best uh, get in touch? Yeah, so the best place probably is rubik.com, R-U-B-I-C-K.com. That's where I have like my weekly newsletter for engineering leaders. And I'm also on LinkedIn and Mastodon. And I post on both of those places. And that's a good place to contact me. Awesome. Thanks so much for the time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.